Dirty McGuire, you've convinced me. I'm going to keep you keep you as my podcast partner. That's that's great. I'm very very happy. Are you listening? Yes. That's what I'm going to do for you. God bless you, Dirty. But this is what you got to do for me. You listen, Dirty? Yeah, what 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 can I do for you, Beverly? Just tell me what I, tell me what I can do for you. It's a very personal, a very important thing. Hell, it's a family motto. You ready, Dirty? Yeah, I'm ready. I want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Show me the money. Oh, show me the money. <laughs> dirty, doesn't it make you feel good just to say it? Say it with me one time, Dirty. Show me the money. Oh, no, 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 no. You can do better than that, Dirty. I want you to say it, say it with you, with meaning, brother. Hey, I got I got a uh, Mikey Wolfrek on the other line. I bet you he could say it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Show me the money. No, not not show you. Show me the money. Show me the money. Yeah, louder. Show me the money. Yes, but brother, you gotta yell that. Show me the money. I need to feel you, dirty. Show me the money. Dirty, you gotta yell. Show me the money. Show me the money. Hey, dirty dog, I hear you calling. I think it's time for the show. The sleep hold has got me confused, but maybe here we go. Mr. Hills and the dog from Maine, event status radio. They're recording again. <laughs> Bagels and biceps all over my screen. What are we supposed to do? Live from 1996 and recorded live over the internet waves, we are the twisted steel and sex appeal that your parents <laughs> warned you about. This is Main Event Status Radio. I am the Dirty Dog Darcy. Joining me is, as usual is my broadcast partner, Mr. Beverly Hills. And today we are joined by Captain Obvious Trey Dent of the Still Real to Us podcast. Captain, how's it going? Good, good. Twisted Steel and Sex Appeal. Somebody's been reading the Jericho biography. <laughs> oh, I've been watching a little bit of uh, Michael P.S. Hayes. Ah, uh, okay. Well, if you're going to reference somebody, at least you know you're doing you're doing the right way using Michael Hayes, one of my all time favorites. Yeah. So, just in case if main event status listeners don't know who you are, Captain, do you want to re- remind the listeners on who you are and where we can find you? Well, if your listeners don't know who I am, they really need to step their game up because not only am I the you know the co-host of the Still Real to Us podcast, but I'm also the hottest independent wrestling manager in the South right now. Uh, I can get on a microphone and verbally undress even the most <laughs> charismatic of adversaries. Joey Ryan learned that the other day, oh, wow. so they're finally learning who I am. And we'll do. That's I'll give you more of a. Awesome. I'll give you more of a chance at the end of the show to do more plugs and where we can find the Still Real to Us show. Um, so we have a very special podcast for today. Uh, we are talking 1996 pop culture and pro wrestling. I wanted to do this podcast in 
because I know very, very little about pop culture, especially growing up. I, As I noted before on previous editions of Mid-Event Status Radio, I live in a wrestling bubble <laughs> that I go to work, work nine to ten hour shifts, listen to wrestling podcasts, most of that shift, you know, those shifts, once in a while I listen to paranormal podcast and all that, I wanted to kind of get grow outside of my bubble and expand my knowledge and Verizons, so to say, and I thought, what better... Did you say Verizons, like Verizon Wireless? Yes, that is my phone carrier. <laughs> don't don't hate. Uh, so I thought, you know, since we are in the middle of covering some WCW shows from 1996, I thought, why not do a show on 1996 pop culture and pro wrestling? So, Mr. Beverly Hills, I know you're the one that got all the got the outline together and all that, so I'll kick it to you to start the show. Right. So it's funny that you say, you know, you live in a, in a very kind of small bubble. I am like the opposite. I'm a pop culture fiend. I, you know, look up old stuff, watch old stuff, remember, have a ridiculous rem- memory of, of this kind of stuff. So when you told me, you know, you want to do 96 pop culture, I was like, okay, this is cool. This is cool. But then I was, I was thinking, well, let's have some fun with this and uh you know let's kind of tie this into into pro wrestling too so um what what i want to do today and uh to have a little fun with this and tie it into our pro wrestling thing too is uh i i thought of kind of some big uh, kind of big ticket items from 96 pop culture in uh kind of a lot of different areas sports music uh tv uh a little bit in the news um, so I thought we'd talk a little bit about that, and then for each of them, I kind of have a, a tangential wrestling question that ties in. So um, I'll probably you know kick it to one of you guys uh, for each of your thoughts on this, and just kind of have some fun and go from there. Sounds good. All right. Okay. Cool. All right. So my first subject is uh, you know in the world of sports here, uh, and. Looking at, at the champs, you know, in, in the big three sports, uh, New York Yankees, Dallas Cowboys, uh, Chicago Bulls. So, you know, in the, in the era of the, of the 90s, the, especially the mid-90s, we're really in kind of the era of uh, dynasties. So, I, first I'll just say any thoughts on these, these teams or whatever? Were you big followers? Are you a fan of any of these teams? Whatever. Any memories? Well, personally, I hate the Cowboys. I'm a 49ers fan, so okay. the, year before, the year before the 49ers had won the Super Bowl, the Cowboys came back and won in '96, which I, I hated because I hated my. I just, they just they're my arch rivals, you know. That's they're my Ric Flair to Hulk Hogan type thing. I just I hate them. They are polar opposites of everything I stood for. The Yankees, my co-host, diehard Yankees fan. I'm a Cubs fan. That was really the start of the Derek Jeter era. So the Yankees, I'm like, I, I, I'm not a New Yorker. I'm not a New York guy. You know, I'm blue collar. I'm Midwest. Yankees won. And then the Bulls winning in 96, I believe that was the year that Jordan actually came back for the full season after his dalliance in, uh, in minor league baseball playing for the Birmingham Barons. Ironically, the team that is closest to my house and my residence in Alabama. Did you, did you happen to ever see him play? When he played for the Barons? No, the, the sad thing was the highlight of his baseball experience was me getting his, or for me, was me getting his upper deck baseball card. Because, <laughs> you know, 
I was a Jordan basketball fan, which everybody was, but you know, I, I grew up rooting for the Lakers. So once they dethroned the Lakers, I'm like, I don't really care about this guy, but I got that minor league Birmingham Barons upper deck, Michael Jordan baseball card. And you know, everybody was like, you know, Oh, he's going to be the left fielder for the white Sox someday. And I'm like, <laughs> how many really thin, like thinly built six foot five guys are really running around the outfield in Major League Baseball right now. No, no, he's super talented. No, he's going to – about double-A, he'll peak out, and then that's about yeah. what happened. And then 96, he made a turn wearing the number 45 jersey, and, uh, you know, that lasted for about a year, and he realized, hey, I suck when I'm wearing 45. Let me go back to 23. <laughs> and then the Bulls took off and won three in a row. Yeah, yeah, and I remember – I w- it seems like we have very similar kind of tastes in sports, uh, albeit kind of like flip sides of the coin. I also hate the Yankees because they beat up on the on our Minnesota Twins brutally in our two th- early two thousands run. Seems like when we ever, whenever we got to them, that's when our playoff run would would die. So I'm not a Yankees fan. I wasn't even a, a really a Jordan fan. I was really like a Shaq fan. And uh, my mom, who who's a big sports fan in her own right, she was a huge Patrick Ewing fan. So we were not a Bulls Bulls family at all. So, so I'm right with you in, the, in that. But man, yeah, Jordan, that the failed baseball run, just watching some of those clips, he's like flailing just looking, just looking terrible. Um, I always, always yeah. wondered because he actually did hit a couple home runs in minor league baseball. If you're a pitcher and you <laughs> serve up a home run to Michael Jordan, do you retire like right after the game and say, "Apparently, this career is not for me"? Uh, I just, I guess, I would just walk up to him and be like, "Autograph, uh, piece of memorabilia." <laughs> As a thank you for giving that up to you? Personally, I think I would probably quit and then go try out for the Minnesota Timberwolves, thinking that, well, if he can make this jump, I can jump backwards and go play basketball. You know, just like that. Yeah. <laughs> probably at but that point. At that point, you could. <laughs> the Timberwolves were very good in 96. So No, you know. it, we drafted Garnett in 95, so it was his second year in the league where he looked like – uh, just as athletic as Michael Jordan playing baseball, and at least those first couple years before he kind of found his body, I guess, if you will. So, yeah, we we were rough. We were real rough. <laughs> so here's like my uh, tie, my wrestling tie-in, so we can pull in Mr. Darcy. Um, so those were dynasties. In wrestling, what's your favorite dynasty? Something that's lasted for a you know great number of years uh, with kind of a big uh, legacy of continuing success, anything that, you know, kind of stretched out for a long time. What's your favorite dynasty? And I'll kick it to Darcy first for this one. I'll have to say, which be stereotypical if, you know, people listen to our podcast, but it has to be the McMahon family just because, you know, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, down to the WWE nowadays, even before, they've been around for... Almost a hundred years now. I've been in, in tied in with the McMahon family. You know, we have WCW that tried against them. We had TNA that tried against them, and TNA, I guess, never really got up against them like WCW did, or even even a tenth of that. But 
I just take the McMahon family because, yeah, they've been in the same business for, like I said, almost 100 years. Cool, cool. Captain, what's your wrestling dynasty? Well, I'm, I'm going to kind of parody this one. We talk about Michael Jordan and then retiring and coming back. I'm going to go with Hulk Hogan because sure. there's a lot of similarities in this too because, you know, although the NBA had Larry Bird and, and Magic Johnson during the 80s, Michael Jordan is really the one that the NBA kind of built their franchise on. And much like Darcy is saying, you know, the WWE's been around for 100 years, but it wasn't until Hulk Hogan came along that they really built the global brand that WWE became. And then you look when, you know, you go back to when he left WWE and kind of semi-retired and then came back out of retirement for WCW and then turned heel. I mean, he revolutionized the sport again, much like Jordan did after he retired and came back and then went on to win three NBA titles. Cool. That's a, that's a good uh, kind of uh, analogy there. My dynasty, uh, I think I'm going to go with the horsemen. I, I just thought, you know, similar to how sports dynasties kind of have to reinvent themselves to keep success, uh, as did the horsemen. Um, and similar to kind of how the, how the great dynasties usually have one cornerstone. Um, you know, the horsemen always had Ric Flair. So that was, that's mine. I, I like that choice that, uh, the horsemen, if I think about WCW, for instance, or, NWA, I think about the four horsemen, and, and obviously Ric Flair and Arn Anderson were the cornerstones, the foundation of the horsemen, and with every incarnation of the horsemen. But yeah, I, I was kind of debating between them, the McMahon family, and the horsemen for my choice. Cool. All right. So my second sports story, uh, 96, uh, Cal Ripken Jr., or as Kevin Nash called him on the Nitro we just watched, Carl Ripken. Uh, Cal Ripken Jr. broke the consecutive games played mark that was set by Lou Gehrig. Uh, any memories of that? I actually remember watching the game. It was on like ESPN built that thing up so yeah. much, you know, and then they actually have the game, you know, and actually see him come out there and, you know, the game starts, they throw the first pitch, which makes it an official game. Mm-hmm. You know, the funny part was to me was I was going, well, technically if there's a rain out in the fifth inning, you know, the game's going to get called and we're going to do this whole thing over again because that <laughs> has happened. But luckily, yeah. this guy's cleared. And then also, that was about the time they built Camden Yard. So that was really, you know, the world's first exposure to that ballpark. I've been to that ballpark. It's beautiful. Um, but just, you know, when you look at that whole Iron Man streak and you think of how many games in a row he played, I mean, there's nobody. I mean, if you get 130 games out of your star player in baseball right now, you're happy, and yes. for him to do 162 for 15 straight years is just mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, I can't think of somebody who goes 15 years at a job without missing a day, let alone, uh, you know, uh, the kind of the, the physicality of being a pro baseball player. So without, and without an injury, all that, and it wasn't just like he was kind of skating by. He was their best player for a you know almost the whole chunk of that time so and yeah I, mention, staying staying with one team you know mm-hmm. throughout the entire streak in an era where free agency happens and players jump from team to team i mean i don't know marriages that last 15 years and this guy played with the same team in the same town for 15 straight years and like you said was his, was their best player and a guy that like 
jumped from one era in the early 80s into the mm-hmm. mid-90s. So, you know, he lasted through, you know, all the different types of pitches that came along and everything else and was able to maintain a high level. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, he might have been the All-Star Game MVP that year as well. That sounds right. That sounds right. Um, so that then begs the question, who's your Iron Man of wrestling? Someone who seemed to keep going and going and performing at a Cal Ripken-esque high level uh, night in and night out over an extended period of time. I'll go to Darcy again first since he doesn't get a chance to jump in on the pop culture. To tie it in with your horseman, Dynasty, Mr. Beverly Hills, okay. I had to pick Ric Flair. That okay. He's known for back when he was NWA World Heavyweight Champion as a touring champion. He would go night in and night out having 60-minute broadways with multiple different opponents that he he can make the crappiest of wrestlers, bring them into a acceptable, if not a good match. And, yeah, just not that many... Well, I don't think since Ric Flair there has been any wrestler that could do what Ric Flair did during his prime. That's a really good choice, and it's going to make mine kind of pale in comparison because my my Iron Man is someone who is over the last probably... 10 years has taken some really big breaks, but I, I just thought like kind of career wise. And I just thought undertaker was, uh, the, the iron man, someone who, uh, whenever he, you know, is kind of, I guess now kind of brought out of mothballs, but during his prime, he could be counted on, uh, for a lot. And, and he could kind of, if we think about the lean years of the Orioles, there were definitely those lean years where Undertaker was expected to carry the likes of, you know, Giant Gonzalez and, uh, you know, types like him. I think for my pick, I'm going to go with somebody who we talked about arch rivals earlier. Like I was a Shawn Michaels fan, but Bret Hart to me was one of those Iron Men throughout the early 80s when he first debuted. But I mean, you take you take back to his Calgary stuff. And then coming into the WWE as part of the you know the heart the Heart Foundation, then going off in his singles, and then basically working his way up, you know, night after night through the Intercontinental ranks and up to the World Title picture, you know, it was all. I mean, he was an Iron Man all the way up until uh, you know the end of his WWE run. You know, when he got hurt for a little yeah. bit, then came back to kind of recharge his batteries. But for a good twelve year stretch there, from like eighty four to about ninety six, I mean, the guy was there night in and night out doing whatever the company needed him to do. Damn, that's a really good one. <laughs> I'm kicking myself. That was a damn good one. Yeah, you're totally right. And it, and you're definitely right in the when you mentioned that he did it through his performances. You know, he he didn't come in from some other realm. He wasn't started he didn't start at the top whatever. He worked it up. So that yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um all right. So I, my last sports one 96, you could definitely not get out of 96 without talking about what my highlight of the 96 year was, which was the Olympics. The Olympics uh, came to the United States in, you know, almost uh, around 10 years uh, from the LA one to to 96 year. And uh, um, they were held in Atlanta. I remember this is 96 Olympics were definitely one of the first uh, sporting events that I kind of like really vividly uh remember um so captain what were your thoughts and memories of the uh, 96 olympics 
Uh, you know, for one, the, the biggest thing that I remember, I remember Michael Johnson with the gold shoes. Yes. But then I also remember the Olympic Park bombing. Yeah, that's kind of the sad memory, but sure. One of those things where it's kind of like the first time that, you know, as Americans, we kind of realized that, hey, you know, really bad stuff can happen on our soil. Yes. You know, it was rare occurrences. I mean, Oklahoma City was around the same time, but, you know, to have a bomb go off in Atlanta at the Olympics, and at that point, Atlanta had not become the mecca of the South that it is now. I mean, that was really Atlanta's first big-time exposure to the world as becoming an up-and-coming city in America. You know, but the Olympics, like I remember, it was the second dream team, so, mm-hmm. you know, weren't as hyped up for it as they were for the first one. Like this, it was it was great that it was on American soil, but as far as the sports landscape during the Olympics were concerned, it was kind of like a letdown for Americans because we just came off the high of what '92 was. Yeah, '92 was so huge because, like you said, because of the dream team. Yeah, '96 for me it was all about the track and field, the Michael Johnson especially with yeah with his gold shoes. Um, yeah, I, I I love the Olympics. It's it's one of those things that because it only comes around four years, um, it's it makes it so makes it so special. Um, okay, so my so my wrestling tie-in then we're talking about you know uh, Olympic level athletics. Uh, you don't have to think of an Olympian because I think I feel like one sticks above the rest. But who who is your favorite or most successful transition from? the legitimate sports ranks and that can be any sport i don't i don't care but from legitimate sports ranks to pro wrestling i'll start out and i know you were kind of alluding to but i had to pick kurt angle that i was trying to think of somebody other other than kurt because kurt's i guess a stereotypical olympian transition to professional wrestling but i really could think of somebody who let's say played for foot in football or baseball or whatever else and transition into pro wrestling as easily and quickly as Kurt Angle and had a similar similar career that Kurt Angle did. That you know, within the what like first year or so of being in the business, he won the WWF title from The Rock and not that many people can say that, yeah, within the first year of being a professional wrestler they won the you know, the world title from The Rock or somebody as great as The Rock. Okay, Captain, who's your best transition from legitimate sports to pro wrestling? I'm going to go a little bit older because I, I grew up, and if you listen to our show, I talk about the time. I grew up on Mid-South Championship Wrestling back in the 80s. You know, Jim Ross, right. Dr. Steve Williams, Ted DiBiase. But before those guys came along, there was Ernie Big Cat Ladd. And Ernie Ladd was one of the first really true guys that transitioned from the NFL into pro wrestling. Um, not to mention one of the first uh, African-American uh, main event stars in pro wrestling. The guy was out there in Mid-South selling out the Superdome back in the late 70s, early 80s as a heel. I mean, people were just lining up to watch, you know, see who could come take him down, whether it was, you know, Cowboy Bill Watts or, you know, Dusty Rhodes or the Junkyard Dog or anybody else that, you know, transitioned and came through the territory. But Ernie Big Cat Lad kind of opened the doors for not just guys to make that jump from, pro football to wrestling but also to make it cool to say that i'm a wrestling fan and i play a legitimate sport as well yeah that yeah that's a good one and i think it really like opened up in the like you said it's cool to to transition from that 
that's really kind of that time when you got all those guys from West Texas State jump in, kind of after he paved the way. You know, Dusty and Tito Santana and um, Ted DiBiase and all, Dick Murdoch, yep, all those guys. Uh, Mine, I'll go because I saw, this is the only probably future world champion that I saw in their legitimate sports career, which would be Brock Lesnar. Um, He was, man, uh, when you look at like tape from different guys who transition from their, their sport or whatever, they, they kind of, they might be stars, but like Brock Lesnar was insane to watch, uh, do amateur wrestling. And, uh, he really carried that. You could see that athleticism. And when people said during kind of his senior year, like he's going to be a pro wrestler, I was like, I could totally see it. Cause he looks like one right now. So, and, and, you know, uh, Darcy was talking the the quick transition that Angle made. <clears throat> Lesnar made just as quick a one, it seemed, and uh, uh, what, you know, it still carries it on uh, to this day. Well, yeah, talk about Brock. Uh, he won his first WWE title from The Rock as well, and I totally <laughs> forgot about Brock. But since Beverly, you mentioned Brock, yeah, he had a he had a huge name in amateur sports to WWE for the first run to. You know, his failed attempt to join the Vikings. Oh, gosh, to, that's right. I even forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, to UFC back to, and back to WWE that I feel like Brock is somewhat trying to – or I feel like wrestling might get another boom if they do. I think it would be tied in with Brock coming back to the WWE and bringing, pe- pe- bringing people's interest back to professional wrestling. You know, the thing is, people forget this. Brock Lesnar may be the only guy from WWE to ever be in a Madden football game because that year he tried out for the, for the Vikings, they put him, Madden put him on their depth chart. <laughs> and he was like their fourth string defensive tackle, before, and that was before they cut him. But when you bought the game that year, he was on the game. I'm going, how cool would it be to have like an end zone celebration where Brock like F fives like quarterback <laughs> or something like that would be so cool. But like I like as a wrestling fan and a 49er fan, I always just went out and you know had the Vikings cut him and I had my team sign him, <laughs> so he was always on my team. So it was just it was it was just awesome to see somebody from the fictional world of professional wrestling yes. legitimized on a Madden football game. Yeah, and I mean, like, we look back, and I think it's, like, remembered as a failure, but, like, if he would have committed and been, like, I don't care if I'm cut, uh, I'll latch on somewhere else, I'll work hard for, like, two or three years, he very well could have been a, a really legitimate football player. Like, he's that much of kind of just a freak. Well, especially and, how how fast that guy could actually run, too. Yeah, yeah, and when he did play in, I think, like, one preseason game, he looked... You could see those flashes, but it just kind of was a, a flash in the pan. Well, and the thing is now it's a different era in pro football where now teams, when they have their practice squad, will go out and sign these just physical freaks who don't uh, necessarily have the football background. The 49ers have something right now. They have a, a former uh, English uh, discus thrower, Lawrence Okoye, yes. on their practice squad. He's been there for a couple of years, and now they're actually saying that he actually might be able to contribute on the football field. But the guy has never played football a day in his life. Oh, my. They, they also signed a rugby player from Australia, and they're trying him out at running back right now. So NFL teams, I mean, if, if, if Lesnar had done, if Lesnar was the age now that he, you know, and tried out, 
he actually might have a better shot where back then you couldn't keep these physical freaks on your practice squad because they were so limited. Yes. You needed guys who were actually able to contribute right away if somebody got hurt. Yeah, and we just actually, yeah, the Vikings just last year, they signed an offensive lineman out of a German league who that that's like high school level. And but he's such a he's like six, you know, six eight, and he moves like a you know, man half his size. So we, yeah, we're doing the same exact thing. So it's, uh, yeah, you're right. It, it, it's a different era, and, and he maybe could have. And I think, like, in addition, he had kind of a, uh, um, what do I want to say? Like a bit of impatience, too. You know, he recognized that he could be a star. Uh, and probably always had kind of that wrestling in the back of his mind, like, oh, shit, I could probably go make <laughs> make a lot of money if I just go back to that, that kind of thing. I don't know. Well, I mean, when you're that big and you're that successful at everything you've done, I mean, whether it was amateur wrestling, world, you know, the professional wrestling world, you kind of have this I can do anything I want to do attitude. And I think, you know, people always talk about the, the failed Minnesota Viking thing. But he did try out two years in a row. So I okay. give him credit for that. But after the second yeah. year, he was like, screw this. I'm just going to beat I'm just gonna go pe- beat people up for money. I can <laughs> yeah. do that. You know, but it was kind of like his first taste of rejection in his life because everything else he had done, he's so physically gifted, he just succeeded at it. Right. Uh-huh. That's accurate. Um, okay. So we're going to sh- shift gears. Uh, I take a brief stop off in the world. In 1996, we had kind of a big rash of fashion supermodels. All right. The the likes of Tyra Banks, Re- Rebecca Romaine, Heidi Klum, all of them. You were a high, you were a senior in high school. Thoughts on the mid '90s supermodels? I mean, it was one of those things where, like, Victoria's Secret. That's the year Victoria's Secret like really exploded on the pop culture scene with Victoria's Secret's Angels, the fashion shows, all that stuff. I remember that that, that was around the first time that I don't know if it was '96 or '97 that they actually did the first. Victoria's Secret special on CBS okay. and people were like freaking out calling it like pornography and I'm like it's just women in their underwear I mean I'm a pro <laughs> wrestling fan I see dudes in their underwear every single <laughs> yeah, week right. nobody cares but oh don't put a woman in her underwear I'm like this is just so <laughs> but you know there's one of the things where like so guys you know, in that age range of like you know 17 to 24 I mean it was like the gold rush of just hot chicks parading around on TV, whether it was, you know, like like you talk about Heidi Klum, Tyra Banks, all those ladies, or even in the world of professional wrestling. I mean, there was just hot chicks everywhere. And it was kind of like, you know, a, 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 a young boy's fantasy come true to see all these beautiful women on TV everywhere. Yeah. And see, I'm kind of like a half, I guess like a half generation behind you. Like I was 10 in 1996. So like I came of age like that was commonplace so yeah i i was like right in it so yeah and it's uh, now it's just like it is commonplace it's crazy to see what's on um yeah so my my question on this talking about the world of fashion who in your opinion is the most has kind of a notable fashion in the world of wrestling it can be either seriously or ironically uh most fashionable wrestling darcy you go my pick has to be the guy who uh, dances all night and can dance a little longer. Wants to stay up all night and stay a little longer. Ric Flair himself, you know, with his robes that you know, can cost $20,000 or more per robe to him, you know, coming out for promos and 
you know, a couple thousand dollars suits to his shoes being super expensive and him having the biggest house on the biggest side, you know, biggest part of town or whatever else that Ric Flair, I think back in the 80s and into the 90s, was the guy that, you know, that a lot of teenage boys wanted to grow up and be, you know, be the absolute best and whatever career profession or job that you do and be the best dressed man the best looking man just best at everything you do right okay who's your fashion icon uh, captain I, I, I really thought he was going to go Jericho because of the light up jacket <laughs> I really did. come on captain I can't always say Jericho for everything but that could have in the light project I'm kind of torn and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two guys here one is kind of ironic because he was just so transcendent. He could do anything. And one that was Dusty Rhodes. Like Dusty Rhodes, you'd see him in one promo. He'd be in a suit and tie. The next promo he's in jeans and a t-shirt. The next promo he's in polka dots in, in bikini shorts, you know, but Dusty could pull it off because he always had the confidence to do anything he wanted to do. And people just bought in, you know, and the other guy is ravishing Rick Rude. I think Rick Rude went back in the in the late '80s, early '90s when he had the airbrush tights, you know, with Jake Roberts' wife on it. I mean, nobody was doing that. That was so ahead of its time. And then even into the DX NWO days, when you see him come out in the shirt and tie, just be quiet, holding the briefcase, you know, Rick Rude. No matter what he was doing, you know, people want to call him a Ric Flair knockoff. That's fine, but the guy was just looked good every time you saw him on TV. Well, like I said, like whether the suit and tie or in the airbrush tights or whatever he was doing, he just always looked better than everybody else. Yeah, that's a good one. That's another one like confidence. Like he uh, had that air where he would like you said, the DX air where he didn't even talk, but he had that that air to him. Um, I'm going to go to with two of them, a male and a female. And I didn't even think that like it's staring me right in the face. Like I thought of them separately, but uh, my two are Miss Elizabeth and Macho Man. Um, (laughs) Good choices. You you know, Miss Elizabeth, uh, just, again, quiet, didn't have to say much, but just always looked super classy, super elegant in the the evening gowns and whatnot in the 80s. And then uh, into her 90s run where she kind of changed with the times and looked just as hot in the 90s as she did in the 80s. Uh, and then, as Captain was talking about with people who can take ridiculous things and make them look maybe a little less ridiculous, that's like Randy Savage for me. Like, I don't know many people that could pull off uh, wearing neon green, neon pink, and neon orange uh, with streamers cut reaching down to the floor and a cowboy hat and make it look not like a crazy man. Or the so. or the one night show we just reviewed of Macho in a cut off sleeve flannel shirt and what was it, like like faded pink and faded green tights and all that and and also that that flannel shirt was tied at the waist <laughs> <laughs> as, well, as well that was that was quite the look from from the Macho Man. I, I'm weird because like I, when I was when I was growing up and Miss Elizabeth was on TV, I didn't really find her that pretty. Like I thought she looked like everybody's mom, mm, you sure. know, a very very elegant mom. Now, when she joined the NWO in the 90s and kind of got into, like, the sluttier Miss Elizabeth, then I'm like, yes. wow, she's really hot. And then you had her and woman side by side in the NWO. And I'm like, man, both these chicks are just smoking hot. Yeah. And it kind of changed my perception of her because I'm like, 
she's actually almost aged in reverse where you go back to WrestleMania three with Steamboat and Savage and you look at her and you're, she, she looked 40 during that <laughs> match. And then, you know, 15 years later, she looked 30. So I'm like, yeah. she was just so just a beautiful woman that just got better with age. Yeah. We, well, we watched a great American bash yesterday for our series. And that's the one where, Mongo turns on the horseman. So the the woman and or she turns to join the horseman, I should say. So woman and Elizabeth go back with her, and then they come out and they're all wearing their you know like, horseman he, evening gowns yeah, or whatever. And it's yeah. and it's like wow, like those three. Except Deborah's not really my taste, but you know the other two look pretty good. Yeah, the, all all three women looked absolutely stunning. <laughs> then yeah, we talked about it on the Great American Bash podcast that'll be released here well before weeks, yeah. before this one but oh, yeah, yeah they just look stunning and yeah <laughs> beverly and i talked about it that in 96 they're hot and even now in 2015 they're still they're still amazing, yeah. amazingly gorgeous it's it's kind of a timeless quality i think elizabeth always kind of had that um okay so switching gears a little bit again out of the world of fashion going into the world of news here okay so 96 uh, the big kind of the big news story uh, is the Unabomber is captured after you know like twenty years of uh, wreaking havoc in the uh, the United States. He found in his shack in Montana. Any thoughts on the Unabomber at all? I mean, he was one of those guys that was like a mystery. I mean, for so long yeah. because he started in the, like the late seventies, early eighties. And it wasn't like it wasn't like he did it all the time. Like I mean, he would have like a couple years would go by before he'd strike again. So he was almost like an urban legend in a lot of ways. And yeah. then finally, when they finally caught him, I mean, his brother turned him in. Yeah, you know, and it's like wow, what kind of society do we live in now? Your brother's like, dude, my brother's a Unabomber. Y'all need to go get that dude. Well, and it was he like is- he he like recognized his words that he used it's like he isn't even like knowing him he's just like oh god that sounds like something that he'd say (laughs) can you imagine like the family reunion or something and then like you know ted kaczynski shows up with a gift no 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 no. nobody's opening that one we're leaving that one alone you know it's like you know you could have like pulled your hair back in a ponytail and maybe trimmed the beard ted you know your your beard's getting all on the turkey legs right now but I mean, it, it was just—it was just such a weird thing because when you finally caught him and you see him on TV, like everybody goes, "Really? He hid that long? Like he looked like a crazy person?" It's and true. it took him twenty years for somebody to go, "Hey, you know that Ted might be the Unabomber. Maybe we could tell somebody." Like it didn't. Like now, if you—if there was a bombing going on and you saw a guy like that, that's the first guy you point out and you tell everybody. Right. But back then, the eighties. In the eighties, nobody bothered anybody. Everybody's like, "Yeah, well, this kind of, Ted's a little crazy, but he wouldn't bomb people." You know, this just shows you like the difference in time. Like now, we'd rat out anybody. Yeah, but back then, it's like well, I never saw that coming. <laughs> so then, my question to go with this: uh, Who is, in your memory, a wrestler that kind of legitimately scared you? That kind of like uh, made your skin crawl or made you? You know, whatever. Check behind your shoulder. I'll start it out that you know we talked about him already earlier, but for me it's Brock Lesnar. Even nowadays, that uh, he isn't a guy that I would want to cross with and piss him off. That one of my friends 
uh, when he w- lived up in Alexandria, Minnesota, here on I-94, he worked at a Menards, and one day when he was working, he saw Sable come through, and a few of his co-workers were gawking, hey, there's Sable, there's Sable, do you think Brock's with him? And my co-worker's like, who cares? If he is, I don't want to screw with her. You know, Brock would come and kick my ass. Well, he's kind of got that look in his eye, like, yeah. that he could that he could tear your brain out. Then first, you know, you know then tied back with like 96, 97 era, when Kane first debuted underneath the mask and... You know, with Paul Bear against The Undertaker and the Hell in Cell match against Michaels, I was scared of Kane back then because I would have been like 9 or 10 when he first debuted. And I mentioned before on WWF Warzone and Kane, Kane's promo scared the living crap out of me hearing <laughs> little kids, you know, chant, burn in hell, burn in hell. So that's another thing, Captain, you, can, uh, you and Jeff can use against me for a video game scaring the crap out of me. But I guess, yeah, those two are probably the two guys that... You know, if not back then, nowadays, scare the living poop out of me. <laughs> Burn in hell. All right, Captain, what's your legitimate scare? I'm sorry, but the, the voice cracking during burning hell. <laughs> I may never get that out of my head. Um, yeah, Dar- me, Darcy is the legitimate scare, right? <laughs> he's the one. He's the guy that Bray Wyatt should have had come sing, uh, I got the whole world in my hands. Right there. That would have been that voice. It would have been creepy as hell, and everybody would have loved it. Um, you know, when I was a kid, the guy who scared the hell out of me, and it's somebody that people have kind of forgotten about, was the missing link. Oh. Like, that dude was just crazy. He had the green face paint with, like, dark blue eyeshadow. He had this weird, like, tuft of hair coming out of the back of his head that he would grab onto and headbutt. You know, he had the goatee that nobody else had back then. And he was just, his character was just so insane and over the top. And, you know, he was doing stuff in, in Dallas that people, you know, like with the with the turnbuckles, you know, George Amos Steele did it. Everybody thought it was adorable. <laughs> Missing Link starts tearing turnbuckles apart. People are like, oh, he's insane and he's crazy. But that guy, him, those matches he had back in like the mid 80s with Bruiser Brody in World Class Championship Wrestling were just, I mean, that was my first exposure to like hardcore, just. I don't want to say death match, but they, those guys would just beat the living hell out of each other, and it looked like they were having fun. But, I mean, as, as a seven-year-old kid, if I ever saw the missing link walking around, I was running the other way. Sure. Yeah, I believe that. I haven't seen too much of him. But the pictures, he he always looks like he's going to run and, like, uh, you know, attack the camera, which is a, which is always kind of a good, good uh, scene there. Mine, uh, you know, going back, I must have been like five um, watching, you know, just little, yeah, little Beverly Hills watching All American Wrestling and up on the screen pops this like dark room. We got candles, we got voodoo dolls and then Papa Shango, the skull face comes on and I literally just was bolted. I, I remember this running, running out of the room, being like, Mama, on TV, uh, wrestling. And, uh, yeah, probably, now once, like, he started wrestling, and now looking back, it's like, oh, man, that, that was pretty cartoony. But it that scared the daylights out of me uh, back back in the day. Uh, with and, and really, it was just those kind of opening vignettes before he even started as a character that uh, that really got me. Well, I still remember that when they had the thing where he made Undertaker, I mean, uh, he made Warrior bleed green. 
Yes. Like a kid, I think I was maybe like 12 years old when that happened. That flipped me out. I was just like, I, I've seen, cause I had seen guys bleed during matches. I had seen it in person, but to see that green ooze coming out of, or out of ultimate warrior and coming over his face, that that's one of those things that just still sticks in my head. And it's been 20 some odd years since that happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, I, I wonder, you know, I'm thinking maybe if that, if there was a different guy, if it wasn't like a kind of early in his career Godfather, if that would have been better, you know, that character. I don't know if that would have translated that well in 92 though. Him playing the Godfather. No, 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 no. If someone else had been put oh. into the Papa Shango role. It's kind of like, you know, if somebody, if, if the guy who played the boogeyman, and I can't remember his name right now, but if he were to come back on TV as somebody else, would it take away from the boogeyman character? It's right. so like, the point, seeing, knowing that Charles Wright, you know, played Kama, and then, which I, I hated the Kama character. It looked like something from Street Fighter, <laughs> yeah. you know, then transitioning into the Godfather, you know, but then going back and going, oh, well, that was Papa Shango, and there's really no reference of it. And it's one of those things where, like, we get every now and then you see the Godfather pop up on TV, and we all love it. But I mean, how awesome would it be if, like, you know, we're getting these boogeyman cameos? Yes. If you got a boogeyman cameo, and then a Papa Shango showed up the same night, and they <laughs> off. Like, I think people like our age would just like they would blow their minds to see Papa Shango and the boogeyman in the ring at the same time. I think you're right. I think that's a good one. Well, heck, <laughs> heck I know the this past Royal Rumble it was Boogeyman and Bray Wyatt. Yes. It would have been awesome if, yeah, then Papa Shango would have came out and all three would have been in the ring at the same time. <laughs> all the, like, supernatural characters over the years. Yeah, fish out Damien Demento and bring him in, too. <laughs> He's probably going crazy on YouTube as I, we I, speak. I, I, yep. Speaking of Bray Wyatt, I actually did become friends with Dan Spivey on Facebook. Oh, Okay. You know, the original, and, and that's who everybody says a lot of Bray Wyatt's characters based off of is the Wayland Mercy character. Yeah. And if you go on YouTube, those videos, the vignettes that he did, those were super creepy. And you can see a lot of that influence in the Bray Wyatt character now. Yeah, the Wayland, man, the Wayland Mercy vignettes were awesome. And it's it's too bad that he had to retire not long after debuting because those were really good. Looking back. All right. My, my other news one is um, in 96, uh, Howard Stern was really kind of blowing up. He's being uh, kind of going nationwide. He was obviously really big in, in New York for, you know, probably a decade before that. But, um, shoot. Sorry. I got, I got a call at the time, but I'm okay. Um so the FCC was going after him. They were turning his book into uh, a movie. Uh, any thoughts or memories on uh, Howard Stern? Are you a king of all media guy or what? Uh, personally, I love Howard Stern. I've always been a fan of his. The last few years, like I've had, I had Sirius all the way up until like a, a year ago. And I used to listen to Howard Stern every morning. Um, didn't follow him as much when he was on terrestrial radio because I, you know, living in, he lived in New York and I was in like Oklahoma and Arkansas, you know, so I didn't really get the Howard Stern show, but you know, as I started listening to him and, and becoming a fan of his, you know, and then you see his progression through the years where early in his career, he was totally over the top. He was the shock jock. He was the one saying all the crazy stuff. 
And then over time, he became kind of like the ringleader. Like he became the <laughs> sane voice on his show where everybody else was saying the crazy stuff. I mean, he's one of those guys that really ushered in a new era in radio. I mean, he's the one who kind of made radio cool for guys like me and Jeff Peck and, and, and uh, Bauer that you hear Jeff talk about. He's the one who kind of opened those doors for people to get on there and talk about their real life and make it interesting so people actually wanted to listen to him. And then the movie Private Parts, I mean, if you haven't seen that movie, it's a great movie. Whether you're a Howard Stern fan or not, it's still just a great story to watch a guy come up through college in, the, in, the, in his normalcy and you know, being awkward, being geeky, being pushed around by his bosses and everything else and overcoming it and triumphing in the end. Yeah, I remember uh, one of my brothers, Daddy Sunshine, who's been on the podcast, having the movie Private Parts on VHS in 96, and I'm sure he probably forced me to sit down and watch it with him one time back then, but I have no memories of it <laughs> other than, I guess, just the cover of the VHS of Howard Stern behind, I think, one of the buildings in New York. Uh, this is yes. obviously me being oblivious to stuff, but I do remember the movie not really so much... You know, much about Howard Stern's career other than, like you said, Captain, that he's a shock jock that made talk radio famous and popular. Yeah, and I remember when we're talking about, like, coming-of-age stuff, I remember when I was in my teens was when he had his rebroadcast on the E! Network at 10 or whatever, 10 o'clock our time. So I would stay up on Fridays and watch that because it's stuff that you couldn't get away with <laughs> most of the most of the daytime. So, yeah, that's that's my really memories of, of him there. Um, and, and I do think it's interesting that, Captain, you brought up the uh, how he's really transferred or transitioned from being the center of it all to now kind of being the kind of the circus master with all the, the insanity going around him. I think it, I think it really has allowed him to still be successful 30 years into it. Well, I think the biggest thing is, you know, now he can go off and do other things like America's got talent and mm -hmm. people aren't as anti Howard Stern as once they, as they once were. There are still people who think that he hates women and he hates gay people and if you listen to his show, he's actually very pro-women and very pro-gay. He just finds their lifestyles interesting, and that's why he always put them on the shows. And you can see that part of him from his radio show kind of come out in America's Got Talent because he's the one who tends to look for, is this a bankable act? Is this something that people would pay money to go see? But because he's matured and kind of toned down his act, He's actually able now to be more mainstream popular than what he was back in the 90s and 80s. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. He's Yeah, it's and it's so interesting because if you would tell someone in, you know, 1992 that Howard Stern would be on NBC uh, in the first hour of primetime, they'd probably just laugh right in your face, right? <laughs> you know? Um so speak you know he is known for for his controversial stuff um what is your either kind of off the top of your head most controversial moment or controversial figure out of uh wrestling someone who really kind of would stir the pot 
Uh, Darcy, you you are going first, so go ahead. I have to say the Montreal screw job. Also, that's been debated many a times before, but for me, that was the first instance in professional wrestling as a fan that I guess kind of diluted the quote unquote real and quote unquote storyline aspect for me as a fan. And you know, after all these years later, Bret Hart's book, Shawn Michaels' book, you know, DVDs, podcasts, everything else. You know, that we can hear both sides of the story and together, their combined story, what happened. It was, to me as a fan, that that's probably one of the most shocking moments in my fandom, fandom as a you know, wrestling fan because I never thought something like that would ever happen and just how much it changed the industry. I mean, the All Montreal... Right. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Let me jump in here real quick. The Montreal Screwjob, I mean, that's been debated years and years. My, I think because me, I'm a Shawn Michaels fan, like, that is one of those really kind of touchy areas for me. But I'm going to go ahead and give you my answer because my answer is part of the Montreal Screwjob, and that is Shawn Michaels, Triple H, DX. I mean, those guys, if you actually go in and listen to them talk about the whole Attitude Era kind of being born and DX coming around, a lot of it was because of Howard Stern because they were trying to look for something – that could catch the public's attention. And, and WCW, the NWO, was kind of doing their gang mentality. You know, well, they were like, well, let's go the opposite way and just be kind of perverse and suggestive like the Howard Stern show is and just see what we can get away with on USA because USA and NBC owned the E-Network. So it's like, well, if you're putting Howard Stern on the E-Network, then we can we should be allowed to get away with some of the stuff too. And, you know, I remember DX doing the whole – uh the Shawn Michaels behind the podium talking about yes. what the USA said they you know said they could say and what they couldn't say. You know, I remember the strip poker game in the ring with Shawn and Triple H and, and China and then then in turn power buying one of the headbangers through the card table. You know, <laughs> I remember when China got her implants done and Shawn and Triple H saying we have two new members of DX. I mean, all that stuff and then, you know, the outlaws, you know, after Shawn retired, the outlaws joining and pushing Chainsaw Charlie and, and Mick Foley, Cactus Jack, off the stage in the dumpster. I mean, they took a lot of the stuff that ECW was doing and a lot of the stuff that Howard Stern was doing and kind of brought it into what WWE was doing and made that must-see TV because much like Howard Stern says, you may not like me, but you're going to listen to see what I say next. That's what DX was doing. DX, you may not like DX, but you were going to tune in to see what antics they did next. And that's what really exposed people, along with Steve Austin, to the new WWE product at that time and helped them win the Monday Night Wars. Right. Yeah, that, that's a really good answer. I think that, that was mine, too, was, was DX, the early years of DX, because you're right, they, they really kind of took it. And when we talk about the changing kind of standards of what happened – they were on the they were on the cutting edge of that, and the last uh, however many almost twenty years has really kind of been spent trying to catch up to that and trying to replicate it and and create that same amount of controversy and just hasn't hasn't been able to do it for sure. And I think they you know if it wasn't for the Montreal screw job, I think the uh, DX wouldn't have the luster that they did after Survivor Series nineteen ninety seven and help. You know, build up Shawn Michaels for him to drop the title to Steve Austin at WrestleMania 14. Sure. Well, it was one of those things where, like, you know, 
WWE had t- had two polarizing kind of audiences at that time because you had the working class blue collar crowd that was pro Austin, but then you also had your guys who were 18, 19, 20 years old that as much as they liked Austin, they also liked the fact that these guys were being dirty and perverted and you know just having fun and goofing off. And that's one thing that Jeff and I talk about on our podcast is when you see guys in the ring and they're having fun, it translates through the TV to you. Much like, you know, Brock Lesnar, his first year back in WWE, it didn't look like he was really having any fun. It wasn't yeah. until last year when he really started feeding with Seth Rollins that you start to see that weird smile creep across his face. And you can kind of see that <laughs> he's really having fun. And you can see that with DX. It was two guys, three guys, whether it was a whole group that were really just in the ring having fun, being silly, and getting paid to do it, that's what translates the most. I mean, WCW, I mean, you look at the last couple of years, nobody looked like they were having fun. Yes. Everybody just looked miserable. You see it in TNA now. Everybody just looks miserable, yep. and that comes across as guys who are just kind of like going out and doing their job instead of performing for the audience. Yep, they're either like bored, pissed off, or look like somebody has a gun to their head off the side of the screen. It's it's almost like one of those three things. Like if you look at end of WCW, you got the board guys. Then you got like Scott Steiner, who's just going to like go off and just yell at whoever he's angry at on a given day. And then, you know, you have the guys that are just like, Oh God, he, I got to cash my check or whatever. So, so yeah, that it, when they aren't having fun, it totally translates. And when they are, it does as well. So, yeah. Um, okay, so I just got a couple left before we kind of wrap up. So uh, in music, out of the music world, um, in September, uh, Tupac was was killed in Las Vegas, uh, which is kind of a, you know, a tragedy uh, of 1996 there. Uh, were you a big uh, gangster rap fan, uh, night, uh, you know, Tupac, uh, any Snoop Dogg, that kind of thing in 96? Oh. I'm kind of laughing at myself because I tell people all the time, like when I was younger, like late, you know, like 94 through like 97, I was really into rap and people <laughs> look me now and they're like, really? Cause you look like a metalhead and I kind of am. But back then I lived in a small town in a, a very small rural town in Arkansas. I was the new guy. So cops were always pulling me over because they didn't know who I was. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't born and, and bred there in that little small town in Arkansas. So I was constantly getting harassed by police and people were constantly messing with me because I was the new kid. So at that time, I could really trans or I could really relate to gangster rap. You know, the, you know, they're always complaining. Oh, cops always trying to pull me over. I'm like, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, and they're like, they're pulling me over because I'm black. And I'm like, they're pulling me over because I'm the new white kid. Yeah, I get that. I feel downtrodden myself, you know, so. Like, I was a huge rap fan. Like, I had every, like, Dr. Dre album, N.W.A. album, Snoop, Tupac. Like, I had all of those. And it wasn't until about 97 when Puffy came out that I got <laughs> out of rap. Like, when when rap got shiny, <laughs> rap, rap became like, um, oh, God, uh, Twilight to me. Like, it, like, who wants shiny vampires? That oh, was rap. Like, I don't want... I don't want my rappers telling me how much money they're making off the poor suburban white kids. You know, just let that go. I want my rap to be angry and say something, not 
be look at my shiny Rolex. Dude, I'm wearing a Casio watch I got from Walmart. I can't relate. You got spinners on your car and I got hubcaps from Walmart. Okay. Just leave me alone now. Now I don't like you guys anymore. And, and then Godsmack came out around ninety nine and I got back into rock. Well, I think oh I God. think that I think that says a lot about I guess artists and bands and all that if they you know so like a lot of people or a lot of their fan base you know they they you know latch under the to yeah to tupac or godsmack because they can relate to their music i am so going to use rap got bad when it got shiny (laughs) that is perfect (laughs) that is so perfect oh trust me you can actually almost if you say that phrase when rap got shiny tell me it's not puffy and mace yeah, Dancing I can picture it in my mind. Spin. Yep, that's the exact video I go to and go. That's when rap died. Yep, the hallway with the lights on it, and they're in the shiny, like big puffy suits. Yep, you can. Yeah, it is an image burned in my brain, for sure. Um, so my my wrestling reference is just you know I, I guess this is kind of the dour one. This is kind of a down one. Is just along that line, someone who was probably had their best days ahead of them uh but was but passed away who in in your mind is a wrestler equivalent to that i would have to say owen hart sadly enough with his tragic passing in 99 that i felt like i believe that he still had a legit main event and wwf title run in him that he never had the chance to that you know he proved himself in 94 93 94 he came out, you know, against his brother Brett and had an awesome WrestleMania 10 match, and an awesome cage match at SummerSlam against Brett for the title. You know, matches like that helped solidify Owen Hart as a top mid-carder for the, you know, Intercontinental title back then or for the WWF title. And I felt like if Owen didn't pass away in 99 and would have, you know, been around for another year or two, I felt like he could have been WWF champion in 2000 or 2001. You know, let me ask you. I want to ask you guys a question, and I know Eric just. And I'm throwing this to Mr. Beverly. Yeah. Do you believe that in a sense that do you think Owen actually would have had a world title run with all the anger that Brett or that Vince had towards Brett, and you look at how Owen was being booked at the end of his life? You know, in the ta- you know he was kind of like the, the the token member of the nation. Yep. Token white boy, and then the tag team with Jeff Jarrett, and then into the right. Blue Blazing stuff. I know everybody says that they think Owen would have got a world title run. I might be in the minority. I don't think he ever would have. I think he would have always been in the upper upper mid card, lower main event. But I don't think Vince would have ever given Owen the title. My only, I would ninety percent agree with you. The only way I could see it is if he would have lasted into the brand split era. And he may have gotten a run on like SmackDown with the SmackDown championship. That is probably the only scenario where I see where if they gave him something as a kind of goodwill, you stuck with us. You've been here for now over 20 years, kind of a, yeah, here's our appreciation. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Like you said, an appreciation prize. That's probably the only way that I see it. Yeah, kind I of was, the same way that Christian's a multi-time world champion. I was just going to say that, you know, add in my thoughts to about that. I was going to say, I think the only time I can see that happening, if Owen didn't pass away when he did is yeah, that he would have showed Vince that, Hey, I'm, I'm a team player. I'm willing to do, 
go through every single angle, every single bad gimmick you wanted me to do. I've done it and gave you my best, and it still worked. I made it work. So I think, yeah, then Vince would have said, hey, you proved to me that you still wanted to be here, so here's my appreciation for all those years of work that you put in for my company. Well, don't forget, Christian had to leave. Now that's true. And become a world champion TNA and then come back. He, he basically had to go prove himself as a draw in another company before Vince gave him the belt. And even then, those that. only like really short title runs. And he only got the last one because Edge got hurt. Yeah. Mm, that's a, I didn't even think of that. You're right. Yeah, well, that's, that's why that's my only scenario that I could have seen is, is if for some reason – they were against a wall. Someone got hurt. Whatever. Okay, you've been here forever, and you can, you can wrestle very good. Uh, here's the championship so for, a, I guess, for you a know, month or two. I guess if he would have still been alive instead of JBL in 2004 after WrestleMania 21, maybe. Brock left. Maybe Owen would have gotten that run. Yeah, who I, knows? It's all speculation. I think, I think Paul Heyman, when he was writing SmackDown, probably would have put the belt on Owen at some point. I agree with that yeah. if he had been around, but. I think it would one of those things where Paul had to fight Vince yeah. for that. And I don't know if, he, if, if Vince – just because of how angry he was towards Brett, I still don't know if he would have put the belt on Owen. Right. That's a good point. It, it, a lot of people speak as if it's one of those like foregone conclusion things like, oh, yeah, he would have had a main event run and he would have been champion for six months. Well, I think that's maybe a bridge too far. My my person who who died too young, I'm gonna go a little bit off the radar because this is something I kind of grew up watching. But was Carrie Von Erich, mm. you know? Carrie Von Erich, you know, had some classic matches with Ric Flair, had kind of uh, cemented world class championship wrestling as a viable company to watch. I mean, he basically put that company on his back for a long time. Came to WWE, became the Texas Tornado, had an Intercontinental title run, you know, but tragically got involved in drugs and and, and painkillers and took his own life, but. I mean, for a guy who basically only had one foot, you know, yeah. and could wrestle classic matches with, you know, Jerry Lawler, Ric Flair, you know, Mr. Perfect, you know, all these guys. I mean, that's a guy that could have been a bankable star in WWE had he been able to turn his life around in 92 when he passed and kind of become a star. I mean, he had the look. He had the physique. He had the charisma. Ladies love Kerry Von Eric. God, I remember living in Oklahoma as a kid. Almost every teacher... You know, every woman that my dad dated at the time, like they all would watch Carrie Von Eric. You know, Kevin was like, oh, look at the little skinny barefoot guy. Ooh, <laughs> the big muscle bound guy on TV that wears shoes. We like him. You know, but Carrie Von Eric, like I said, in, in the whole Von Eric clan, I mean, literally, like, you know, David, Carrie, uh, Chris, I mean, all of them tragically passed away. And all of them could have been, you know, potential big time stars through the '80s. You know, Carrie had a longer, a longer, a little bit longer life than the rest of them, but you know, he just never got that really big break. You know, whether it was in NWA, like he had to hold the NWA title, I think, for like a week. You know, and then you know, he never really got anything higher than the Intercontinental title in WWE. But the guy had all the tools to be a huge star had he not taken his own life. Okay. Mine is now. I got a few different kicking around in my head. Um, I, I'm going to go with one that not necessarily one that could have been a, a you know a multi-time world champion or even one that would have been on the top of the card, but just one that I really wish I could have seen more of. And um, that's Luis Piccoli. I just thought that 
what little that I have seen and what little that I saw when he was, uh, you know, a part of the, the New World Order as kind of uh, Scott Hall's lackey was really, really good. And uh, I just wish we could have seen more on that. Louis Piccoli, when he was in ECW before he came before WCW and WWE got into this bidding war and buying up all of ECW's talents, Spicoli was one of those guys that uh, it was kind of like a shorter version of Kevin Owens. Like he hmm. he didn't have the body of a pro wrestler, but he could have some really good matches and really great matches. And he was very innovative. He was very good on the microphone. I mean, he to me. He is the precursor to what Colt Cabana is now. I mean, I, I could have oh. easily seen Louis Spicoli, you know, you know, when when podcasting starting up, Spicoli having a podcast, you know, yeah. and, and doing all the stuff that Colt Cabana does now. That could have easily been Louis Spicoli's life had he not passed away. Yeah, yeah, because he because he really was able to connect. Uh, you know, just because like I like I'm saying when I saw have seen just a few minutes that he was on nitro he really grabbed me and what you know was was really interesting to me so yeah um okay last one going in the realm of film here uh one of the big movies was uh jerry Maguire, and uh you know the big quote was show me the money right so this is just whether you want to talk about it or not I just want everybody to do their best, show me the money, and then talk about, just to finish up, who is your most bankable wrestler in history, also known as who should be shown the money? I guess, you know, I'll start it off first. When, you know, I see the that line, show me the money, I have to try to do my Vince McMahon impersonation and say, show me the money. <laughs> and I guess if I had to pick a wrestler, I had a tough time with this, and I'd probably say John Cena, just because, you know, nowadays he's a modern-day Hulk Hogan, that modern-day Bruno San Martino, that Vince can go back to John Cena when the business is lack, the business is lacking, the ratings are going down. That he, Vince knows he can put John Cena in the main event, you know, for SummerSlam against Seth Rollins' U.S. title versus WWE title. He knew people would be interested on that. He knew that John Cena could pull out good matches out of people when he doesn't have anybody else. Okay. Captain, who's your most bankable? Well, listen, you guys are getting me in a, in a tricky spot because I, I, I I'm going to try to I'm gonna try to go in character for this one. So you're going to get a lot of little Dr. Trey with this one. So Yes. I want you to show me the money. There. That was, that, was like, yeah. that was freaking good, man. That was good. All right, so I'm going to go a little different than you because I know most people are thinking, like, who's your top guy, your main event guy, who can drive the most money? I know a lot of people are thinking Cena, Austin, Rock, Hogan, Flair. I'm going to go a little differently with this one. I'm going to go with the guy that can make you the most money by making somebody else a star, and I'm going to pick Edge. Edge is one of those guys that for so many years you could put him in a match with anybody and he's going to make either your top star like your your best good guy even more popular because he's gonna be so dirty and so underhanded and so slimy that people hate him which builds up the good guy more or if he's your top good guy the other guys will be even more hated because he just had that weird in, in uh, uncanny ability 
to connect with an audience on either level, whether he was a heel or a face. And he could have a great match with Big Show. He could have a great match with an aging Mick Foley at WrestleMania. <laughs> he could have great matches with John Cena. He could have great matches with Randy Orton. He could have great matches with CM Punk. It didn't matter. That guy had with I mean, he made Hulk Hogan a tag team champion in WWE, and Hogan <laughs> would only get the ring for three minutes. <laughs> and the the so, interesting oh sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Say like I mean I mean literally it's Edge gets beat up for about fifteen minutes, <laughs> hot tag to Hogan. Big boot, big boot, punch, punch, clothesline, drop the leg, tag team champions go home. I mean, Edge is what I tell people all the time. Everybody loves Seth Rollins. Seth Rollins is copying Edge. And Edge may have copied Ric Flair to a degree, but the fact that he was so unselfish would put anybody over or win, you know, didn't, didn't matter what the company needed him to do. He was the ultimate soldier, and you could bank on that guy to always help draw in money. And I was going to say the really interesting thing about Edge is it looked for a good, like, two to three years that he was going to be, like, one of the greatest what-ifs. Like, that he was going to be nothing. And, like, wow, that could have really been. And then all of a sudden he just exploded. And he became that guy that, that you talk about. And it's really one of the kind of, like, great saved careers of all time. I mean, when people go back, I remember, I remember when he debuted in WWE and you had all those edge promos of him in the subway and everything yes. else. And you're like, this guy looks really cool and really hip. And then at the time when he debuted, he had zero personality. <laughs> yes. Like he had nothing. Like he could not connect with an audience. I mean, even when he was in the brood, I mean, they had to put him second fiddle to Gangrel because Gangrel had a little more mic experience than Edge did. It wasn't until him and Christian decided, let's be us. Yeah. And kind of just, you know, stealing from the rock, take your natural personality and just turn it up a little bit that it really took off. And then he was always having great matches. But it wasn't until his natural personality came through the TV that that is what grabbed people and made them want to watch him. Yes, I. That's a good. That's an underrated pick. But everything you say totally makes sense. Um, all right, I'll I'll do mine. And uh, yeah, uh, show me the money. <laughs> My show me the money is one of them. One of those low hanging fruits that you talked about. Mine's The Rock. I just think like. Even when he comes back these days for those brief, you know, 30-second appearances, he still, uh, you know, lights up the arena and everybody can get behind him and just feed out of his hand. And uh, he's just so bankable, I think, as a top act. I think it helped out, too, with The Rock that, you know, when he left WWE back in 2002 and made it, big and movies that it helped him out a lot especially when he comes back into the WWE most people know him as Dwayne Johnson the movie actor not knowing Dwayne Johnson the professional wrestler okay I'm gonna play devil's advocate now I'm not a big fan when The Rock comes back now because I like seeing guys evolve and sometimes I feel like Rock is stuck in 2002. Like, a lot of the stuff he cuts on people is still the same stuff he was cutting, you know, 13 years ago. Like, I like seeing him That's because it's a, part of, it's a part of my nostalgia and my childhood. But, you know, when he was feeling with Punk, I thought Punk had him beat on the microphone. Oh, I did too. You know? 
I actually, I actually did too. I remember thinking that. I mean, but, I, you know, against against Cena, Cena's kind of a knockoff verbally of The Rock, right? So those guys are on par. But when he, I mean, if him and Kevin Owens should ever get into a feud, you know, God, <laughs> God willing, Kevin Owens is going to dissect him on a microphone yes. and kill him on a microphone. You know, much like Punk did, but it's just like he, he comes in. It's, it's kind of like you know when you when you see a movie, and then they do the sequel. In the sequel, all the parts that we said was great about the first one, they overdo in the second one. <laughs> they just do it again. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like you're know, like Mike Myers and in, and in, in, you know in um, Austin Powers. Austin Powers. Yeah, yeah, you know the whole like oh yeah, you know all the babies and I was just saying, yeah, yeah baby. babies all over. Yeah. yeah, and the second and third ones, that's basically all the movie was, was him <laughs> those catchphrases. And The Rock has kind of become a, a, a sequel to what he once was. Like, it's like he does his catchphrases and, you know, says, you know, does the whole, like, I'm so, you know, The Rock's finally back in Insert Your Town <laughs> Here. But outside of that, like, he really hasn't done anything new or creative upon any of his returns over the last few years. But I think, and why I pick him is he's so bankable that he can do that and get away with it. And all you need to do is bring him back, and he runs down his list of stuff, and the crowd is going nuts and giving him their money. And, you know, not many people can get away with that. You know, most would have people getting sick of him, and, you know, Mike Myers is a good example. But... Um, you know, I think The Rock has enough that he can still create that buzz um, from the people. But why is it okay when The Rock does it, but it's not okay when Hogan says brother like 35 times in an interview? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I, that's a good question. Maybe because Rock's been doing it for now 20 years and Hogan's been doing it 30. So we got to wait another 10 years for The Rock. So we got to wait another 10 years for The Rock. I don't know. There's some line maybe. I don't know. By the way, I, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of homework because I know you guys study watching old stuff and you guys watch new stuff and everything else. Um, during one of our last shows, one of my last shows, we do television tapings. And so we have to do like the little interviews behind the scenes, you know, talking about the next upcoming show. And everybody who cut an interview said the same thing starting out. Let me tell you something. <laughs> I do my interview. I didn't do it. And one of the guys pulled me aside. He goes, you know, you're the only guy up here who doesn't do that. And I'm like, yeah, because I was not brought up in the business of wrestling. I was an outsider that came in. So here's some homework for you guys and the people listening at home. Watch your promos, and especially like go back into like the early 90s stuff or even in some of the independent stuff now. And just see how many people, when they grab the microphone, either say, let me tell you something or something of that ilk, and you can trace all that back to Hogan because Hogan was the makeable star of the 80s. All these guys will either, they won't do it in Hogan's voice, but they'll always go, well, let me tell you something, Ric Flair, or let me tell you something, Sting, or let me tell you something. It's like, well, you have the microphone, we assume you're going to tell us something. (laughs) You don't have to actually say, let me tell you something. Well, let me tell you something, Captain. It's the time. It's time for us to wrap up the show. So I'll let you do your plug for the listeners. of Made Event Status Radio can find more of you. 
Well, if you want to listen to the Steel Real to Us show, you can go on, uh, go to Facebook.com, the Steel Real to Us show. You can find us on iTunes. Just search for the Steel Real to Us show. We're also on a bunch of stuff. I don't even know. Just Jeff's job. I don't know that stuff for where our show is at. I just know that we're out there and we're pretty freaking good at it. Um, as far as I can go, if you want to find my fa- my normal Facebook page, is Facebook.com slash Captain Obvious 3D. Um, if you want to find my manager page where you can see all my promos I cut for independent wrestling throughout Columbia or throughout Tennessee and Alabama, uh, just do a search for Dr. Trey Franklin. You'll find my fan page and his actual Facebook page. Um, and then coming soon, I haven't even announced this on my show yet, but coming soon, I will have a Tumblr page for Dr. Trey Franklin where you can go on there and get actual, uh, relationship advice, personal advice, life advice. I know Eric Darcy misses I do. Uh, my, 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 my closing thoughts. You know, I know he, I know he likes what I learned in, in independent wrestling, but I know he misses my life thoughts. Um, but coming soon, I'll have the Tumblr page up for Dr. Trey Franklin and you can go on there and get all of your life and relationship advice from him. That'll be very exciting. I know Jeff created a Twitter, Twitter account for you guys is it's at SRTU podcast. I know yeah, but Jeff, Jeff runs that. I don't even have the password for that. I know you're you're on Twitter too, Captain. How can people find you on Twitter? On Twitter, uh, it's at Captain OMG. Uh, I'm not on there as much as I should be because I have a life and Jeff doesn't. So uh, he's on there a lot more than I am. But if you hit me up on Facebook or hit me up on Twitter, I'll always respond because I like talking to people. I have a big mouth. Then for our the for our podcast, you guys can listen to us at, on our website, Mid Event Status. Dot com or on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Radio. We are also on iTunes. Rate us, review us, subscribe to us. We want to move up on the charts. We want to team up with the Still Real Us podcast. You guys can also follow us on Twitter for Beverly Hills. It's at Beverly Hills M-E-S. For me, it's at Dirty Dog M-E-S. That's dog as in D-A-W-G, Dirty Dog M-E-S. And we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Radio. And you close out this show, Captain, as I always do each each edition you come on. I would like some Captain's closing comments. Well, we got to go into a little bit of history today, a little bit of nostalgia, and, and go back into your childhood. And everybody has defining moments in their life, whether you were in a car accident or whether you won a trophy or you threw a no hitter in your middle or uh, elementary school baseball league, whatever it is, you have those defining moments, but don't let the moment define your future. Use that as a foundation to build upon, to have a much larger successful story. Don't be like uncle Rico and Napoleon dynamite and living in the past and living on your past heroics. Use that to ground yourself and be the basis for what you want to be as you go forward in life. Then for Mr. Beverly Hills and for Captain Obvious, I am the Dirty Dog Darcy. We'll catch you guys next time. That was amazing. You should get get much more time than anyone else. That is our show. Good night, everybody. That's so good.